1: Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamochko.
2: And I'm Mike Kessler.
1: Today we have a special guest on the podcast. That's Tyler Stewart, who's a managing director and co-founder of one of the largest cannabis private equity firms in the business. That is Green Acre Capital. He provides some great insights on the cannabis and investing business. So anyone uh, trades stocks in the space, invests in the cannabis space, this is a must listen episode. Before we get into it, just want to disclose that Tyler is an advisor and investor in Accelerate. And uh, he provides some super unique insights on where this cannabis industry is going. So enjoy the show. Cheers. All right. We're live with Tyler Stewart, uh, founder and managing director of Green Acre Capital, which is a leading cannabis private equity investment firm. Welcome to the Absolute Return podcast, Tyler. How are you doing today?
2: Good. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Glad to have you on the podcast. To start out, why don't we just get uh, a bit uh, about your background, tell listeners how you got into the cannabis investing space.
2: Sure. Yeah, so I come from the investment banking side of the business. Most of my career was spent on what we call the sell side in different roles, Um, most of it with a, a boutique energy investment bank here in Calgary called First Energy. Um, and I wrapped up that part of my career um, in 2015, 2016, was looking for a bit of a change, wanted to move on to what we call the buy side of the business, whether it be private equity or, or venture capital. And at that time, uh, there was a lot of discussion around cannabis uh, becoming legal as Trudeau got into power, and so I thought, you know what, here, here could be a potentially interesting opportunity that I didn't think a lot of people were talking about. I think there was enough that made it interesting, but not too many that made it crowded at that time, and so I spent uh, most of 2016 just doing my homework and research. On, on the industry mostly in the US because um, if, if you recall there was already some states that had legalized back in 2014 so we could already see how that recreational market was was unfolding so I was on a on a plane in a lot of different directions going to conferences and trade shows and meeting with different companies and just trying to get the, the knowledge base up. Uh, and, and, and form a, a thesis and, and figure out what the best opportunity would be for me at that time. And uh, so I came together with a few partners who, who are now my partners at Greenacre, Acre. And uh, we launched our business, which is a venture capital fund in January of 2017, after spending close to a year studying the market and, and figuring out what that thesis might look like.
1: So you've followed the cannabis industry for a long time now, and you've been investing for a number of years. When you set up Green Acre, what was your initial approach to cannabis investing, and how has that evolved over time?
2: Yeah, you bet. So when, when we set it up, we thought, okay, you know, there's, there's already a little bit of hype in, in, in some of these names. You know, this is going into mid to late 2016, and, and stocks had, had had been moving already. The early movers had been at least, and so we thought, okay, well, we probably don't need to go set up a hedge fund and invest in publicly traded companies with real high volatility. We thought we could add more value, uh, digging around in the corners and looking at sectors that were underfollowed. So our initial thesis in in sixteen seventeen was we were going to be early stage venture capital investors in ancillary cannabis businesses. So the way that we looked at ancillary was anything that's not a pure play grower. So at the time, all of our licensed producers were, were cultivators and they were just providing uh, flour and some oil to, to the medical and then soon to be recreational market. And we thought, okay, there's a there's a whole... Um, other segments or multiple segments of infrastructure type investments that we could make, um, and we could we could find uh, a lot of interesting deals. And and most of the time we had um, a little bit more leverage to strike better terms in some of these deals where uh, the crowds weren't investing in yet. So um, some of our early in- investments that worked out well for us, one was a, was a brand play called Tokyo Smoke, um, another was a, a testing lab called Anandia, and, and we still got the benefit of, of a robust public market on the exit of these businesses, but we weren't necessarily investing in those licensed producers. So that was really the, uh, the premise initially, it was to be active investors, to take a, um, a, a venture cap or private equity type of approach where we were making uh, anywhere up to like a five to seven year investment, being active on the board or, or in, in strategic advisory roles. Uh, in some cases, we even started. Uh, businesses where we saw a gap in the market, we we saw something that uh, was was working well in in a established U.S. state, but we didn't see it up here, and nor did we see people uh, launching those businesses. So we've actually created our own businesses where we uh, acted as interim CEO and and then brought in staff and, and did most of the capital raising. Um, so a fairly uh, fairly active um, approach to uh, the companies that we're investing in. We generally wouldn't invest in anything unless we've spent a lot of time around the people and seen the assets and toured the facilities and gotten comfort with uh, the individuals and and their facilities. Sounds like a, so a Tyler, lot of
1: a lot of due diligence. Mike, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So Tyler, when you look at your previous previous experience in an energy focused investment bank, where do you see some of the synergies between energy investing
2: and cannabis investing now? yeah, you know, I think the two industries are similar in in that they're both capital intensive industries. And and so you know the energy market is, is notorious for needing to raise a lot of funds. Um, and the the bulk of of cannabis businesses are in cultivation here in Canada, and that's expensive. you know it's 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 expensive and time consuming to build out your facility. Um, without knowing you're even going to be licensed. You need to raise raise tens of millions of dollars and it would take you two to three years before you're even licensed. And then once you're up and running, you lose one crop and uh, that's a huge drain um, on your cash flow. So you, you notice that these cannabis companies, when the markets were open for them back in 17 and the first part of 18, they were raising crazy amounts of money. You know, they might've been Uh, It might have been the most active uh, industry for a period of time for these investment bankers raising money. Um, So I think you know the 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 closest parallel to energy would be the amount of cash that's required or capital that's required to fund these operations. Um, And and, you know it's it's funny you'd see a lot of the same uh, investors in small cap energy just jumping around to to other hot industries. And so we saw a lot of those same names playing. Uh, the public cannabis companies in the early days as well. Um, So high tolerance for risk, obviously, was was required for those investors.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of hot money and a lot of speculation a number of years ago as those uh, businesses were getting formed. What I find fascinating is not only is your firm active in the uh, investments you make, but you also indicated that you're involved in uh, starting and launching uh, cannabis businesses. Can you give some examples of, of companies you've helped uh, incubate could just be from a a broad general sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think the best example is a project that I've been working on out on Vancouver Island for a couple of years now. Um, We, this plays into one of our thesis which is we always felt that the large uh, licensed producer is going to be the budweiser uh, analogy and then what we need to see is a lot of craft plays so craft beer became a real thing in the last couple decades and we always saw that these large lps were set up with you know great entrepreneurs or Uh, brokers or bankers or lawyers, but they weren't really set up with a view to grow the highest quality uh, cannabis uh, and create a brand that was really based on quality, which I I use the the craft beer analogy because a lot of people have gone away from that mass produced beer into a craft beer because they think it's a better tasting product. And so we saw cannabis uh, was going to play out like alcohol, say, or any other uh, food or consumer packaged good, and we didn't see the attention to quality from the beginning with these LPs. You know, we had um, hundreds or uh, or more companies come through the boardroom, and uh, they'd be describing their their teams and and their approach to the business, and there was no uh, commentary on who that master grower would be. So. Think of it as, you know, would you launch um, a beer label without a brewmaster? Would you launch a wine label without a winemaker? There's no way it would because it all starts there, right? And so what we thought was going to happen is we'd have hundreds of these LPs come out and they'd all be competing on uh, size and scale. And, and um, uh, eventually a lot of them would have to fail because you would, everyone can't be Budweiser. And so what we did see was that attention to... To the craft and to the quality, being led by people that already had uh, decades worth of experience growing this plant, um, and a lot of those people were having problems getting into the market. Uh, they're they're not uh, your typical entrepreneurs that uh, do well in a highly regulated environment. You know, the the black the black market in cannabis it's, it attracts a lot of different characters now. Um, the catch twenty two is that they've got a lot of the expertise, and, and that takes a long time to develop. You know, it's it's not just flipping a switch and expecting that you can grow a great product overnight. So, to address that perceived gap, uh, what we did is we said, "Okay, how can we work with a whole bunch of?" these black market growers that want to come to light and want to get a small facility license and then need help doing that. And so we put in, uh, we started a company and essentially what it is, it's like a growing collective and so we're helping uh, through our uh, consultants get these, these growers on Vancouver island all licensed and and we're setting up another business which is going to be uh, a processor and essentially that processor is where we're going to try to create value and we're going to have exclusive offtake arrangements with our our army of growers on the island uh, to take all that high quality flour in and and then get it to market whether it it goes in jars of dried flour or or pre-rolls or a certain type of extraction into a vape pen or an edible so we thought that was um that was a way to play the craft market at scale, um, because I think that, you know, there's two ways to win. You, you could win by, by size and economies of scale, and you can be that Budweiser, or you can be that great craft brand. Um, but you just need to still be able to scale that craft brand. So this was our solution. So we own 70% of the business. I still act as, as CEO. And uh, we're, we're getting licensed and getting built out. And then we'll eventually pass it over to uh, full-time staff
1: to run. There's a lot of different areas in the cannabis value chain, many of which you've already mentioned, whether it be licensed producers, uh, retail, uh, processing, distribution, or perhaps even ancillary businesses such as uh, software and things of that nature. Now, as, as a firm, do you tend to diversify, diversify across the value chain or, value chain, or, or do you find certain... Areas more compelling than others uh, at this moment.
2: Yeah, we, we we try within the portfolio. We have two funds now, and within each fund, we've 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 tried to diversify into multiple uh, segments of of the value chain. So we do have exposure, despite what I had said about the LPS. We still do have some cultivation exposure in Canada uh, as well as the U.S. We've got. A lot of retail exposure, uh, particularly uh, given our last deal was a fairly large deal into a public retailer up here in Canada. Um, so we're pretty heavy in fun too on retail. Uh, we, we feel like there's a disconnect right now. And that the market is, is assigning a, a disproportionate amount uh, of the value to the growers in Canada. And when we look at the U.S. market, for example, um, these MSOs are vertically integrated so they could grow, distribute, process, manufacture, and retail. And so you, you have more assigned value to uh, each side of or each part of their operation. And so we didn't see that in retail. We saw these things trading at 0.5 to 0.6 times uh, sales, which is extremely low. When we look at the US, it was more like one to two times. Um, and we didn't see the, the, the pubcos getting the credit for uh, the amount of revenues that they're generating now. So retail to us looks looks really good right now. And so we've built out a really strong retail portfolio. We have uh, pure play operators in BC, in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, in Ontario. And then we've just made a large deal and one that has um, probably the largest footprint uh, in the country. That one's called Fire and Flower. And we're also kind of circling back on some of these distressed um, LP's. Uh, some of these might start to look good uh, if they're in the right neighborhood. If we can get the right operating team in there, uh, we just need to figure out what our uh, what our secret sauce is and why we can do this better versus others that have kind of failed. So uh, we're starting to have more discussions internally, at least about uh, some distressed pub codes or distressed LPS. We still like brands. Uh, we we think um, brands win in in almost every other consumer segment out there uh, whether it be alcohol whether it be food whether it be cars clothing brands win and our first investment in tokyo smoke taught us that so we're still looking to build out great brands or support great brands i talked about the craft market i still think it's under so uh we want to have good exposure there you know the other large question that we're asking right now is is um what happens if if the u.s or when the U.S. decides to um, federally legalize cannabis, and in times like this, with with COVID and and uh, a lot of jobs lost and and um, contraction uh, in in economies. Um, I think governments will be looking closer at all uh, sources of revenue, and so it's natural to think that cannabis has a a better chance of going federally legal in the U.S. um, post post COVID. So um, that's one of the internal discussions now as well: is is how do we play that? How, How do we capture value in that scenario where? Um, all eyes are on the U.S. legalizing.
1: Yeah, this market is developing so quickly, and you guys have an interesting viewpoint because you're largely focused in the private markets. However, you do delve into the public market as well on occasion. So how do you see uh, the differences in these various uh, markets, private versus public? And are you seeing like any major differences in, in valuations or opportunity sets?
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Usually you, you always see a a discount on the, on the private companies. You know, they, they trade at a discount to the publics for a reason. So you look at your public market comps and then you say, OK, I'm a private. So what's my discount? Is it 10? Is it 20? Is it 30 percent? And, you know, the whole Canada sector started pulling back in fall of 18 when we legalized. So right around October of uh, I think it was October 18th that we legalized uh, the market. You could just see the market roll over. Um, so it was kind of a buy the rumor, sell the news event. Um, and so cannabis really has had a year and a half to adjust, and so we really went through our pain uh, with with the public market, um, and then the corresponding uh, private market pullback after. There's always there's always a lag where where you know uh, privates don't don't pull back immediately like a public would, but eventually they do. Um, and so we saw that. Um, and so when when the rest of the market really uh, took a hit in mid March it wasn't quite as bad for cannabis because we had already been off, you know, maybe 50 to 75% uh, in, in certain names. Um, so this, this recent sell-off, we haven't really seen um, more contraction in multiples. I think it's too early to see that, but what we have seen in both public and private markets is, is a lack of capital. So uh, whether you're a public or a private, uh, you generally need money uh, because it's a capital intensive industry, and the capital markets generally aren't open right now so um, the best operators will get money, uh, but uh, eighty to ninety percent of them won't and so you know that's that's similar i think in in both markets and what I've been encouraging a lot of our investees to adopt is a really a survive then thrive mentality. You know, we first got to get through um, COVID and, and all that, depending on the markets you're in, the, the, the different challenges, um, whether it be regulatory or overtaxation or proliferation of the black market. You know, we need to get through all these challenges. And if you're still standing in six or 12 or 18 months, then you have um, exponentially better chance of being one of those long-term winners, being one of those Budweiser's at the end of the day. So, you know, whether, you, whether our, our companies are in the public or the private space, we're, we're telling them the same thing, you know, like get your costs down. We're in an uncertain times. Um, make sure you navigate uh, these choppy waters and come out on the other side of it um, with a chance to gain market share. Uh, and be a longer-term winner. So, so Tyler, one thing that you'd mentioned
1: was the access to capital being an issue both in pro- public and private markets. As kind of a, an effect of that, have you seen your investment horizon uh, in terms of your portfolio companies? Have you seen that increase where, you know, in a company that perhaps you'd be looking to IPO or sell to a strategic acquirer, uh, in three years, perhaps that that's maybe being moved out to five years or longer, or are you seeing any effects in that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I would say, you know, uh, we were lucky with our timing on, on the first fund having launched that in, in early 17, in January of 17, and we were making investments by, by March of 17, and we had already had some exits, Uh, within a year. So spring, summer, 18, we had already had two exits out of the first fund. And that was because we had really robust public markets and and some of our ancillary businesses were getting sold into these LPs. And so as soon as the the market started cooling in late 18, that natural exit strategy for us um, changed a lot. So LPs weren't throwing silly money around on M&A because they couldn't access the access the markets to the same extent. And furthermore, there was a few uh, that made made some really bad deals at the top of the market. And so I think everyone just kind of got scared uh, overpaying for assets. So you know that's that's definitely affected our um, exit on on certain privates. You know we had. We've had um, multiple Fund One and Fund Two companies that were in uh, late-stage discussions on exits, and given the markets just pulled back, uh, those deals never happened, uh, and and they're essentially off the table right now. Um, so, you know, we were also lucky that we still have a lot of life left on on both funds. They're both set up as Five to ten-year funds, so we can we can take these things out to ten years if we still have uh, positions that need time. So you know we're not coming due on those until 2028, 20, 2029. 20, so you know we've we've got a lot of time, thankfully, with these companies to get exits.
1: What I find fascinating is the dichotomy between the current market environment. Which is pretty poor in terms of capital raising, basically, have seen very, very little uh, in terms of equity financing, aside from the odd distress deal. You contrast that to a couple of years ago, a peak of the market, where a ton of deals were getting done for seemingly pretty much every cannabis company. You had investment banks were underwriting nine-figure deals. You had strategic investors, uh, whether they be alcohol or tobacco companies, underwriting, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar equity investments at uh, what seemed like very, very high valuations. Um, what do you think ultimately... <laughs> Happened? Did they pay too far or too high of a price, and and are things cheap now, or or how? Like, what do you think happened since a couple of years ago? I remember specifically you were quite bearish on the licensed producers back at the peak of the market, and that turned out to be you know, an absolutely great call. I'm just wondering what you saw then, and if things have changed now, given prices have come down uh, pretty significantly, and there could be some uh, distressed opportunities.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very accurate. You know, I think it was, there was a lot of FOMO um, with, with investors in the market. You know, like the, the real returns, I think, were made in, in 2015, 2016, 2017. And um, then the, I think that the rest of the, the, the public kind of got onto that story and, and started taking these stocks higher in, in the last leg. Um, and it was also fueled by these these large liquor companies or tobacco companies uh Altria coming in and constellation coming in, and um you know taking the the equity prices even higher and and then the retail investor didn't want to miss out on that ride and you know, I always, I always use like the the cab driver or the Uber driver example. Like, <laughs> you know, when your cabbie or your Uber driver is talking about pot yeah you probably shouldn't be selling, right? It's the sho- so it's what, the we shoeshine boy story too,
1: right? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. But, sorry. I said it's the uh, shoe boy story. In, uh, yeah. in 1929, yeah. that's when you know when to get out of stocks, when your shoeshine boy is talking about how much money they're making. But as you indicated, cab drivers, Uber drivers as well, they're kind of, uh, after they've gotten involved, there's really no one else to bid up the stocks, right?
2: That's right, yeah. So, you know, we, we, could, see it, we could see it was coming, but the problem is, you know, you, like you could see it coming for what felt like years, you know. And so every time you'd sell, Uh, you were wrong because the market just went higher and higher and higher for years Um, until of course it didn't. Um, So yeah, too much money, I think chasing the same stocks and, you know, like a lot of bad actors too, you know, whether they were um, investors or whether they were brokers, bankers or entrepreneurs starting these companies, you know, a lot of these companies had no right being public. You know, it was it was a pure um, promotion game, um, and we're seeing the downside of that now, with with certain stocks off ninety ninety five percent from their highs. You know, the other thing that I think we we convinced ourselves of here in Canada was that uh, we were going to be the dominant global player in cannabis because we were um, next to Uruguay, the, the the first country to really roll out a proper uh, recreational program, and so. Our large public companies had access to capital, and they were going to take that capital all around the globe and and use our expertise to build out industries everywhere, whether it be Europe or South America or or Africa or Asia. And that never really happened. You know, the, we we didn't really um, get to a point where where we made a dent in. in in the global market and, you know, all these other countries are turning on their own industries and and looking locally for for people to grow those. So I think, you know, that was probably, um, you know, uh, maybe a little bit misleading uh, that we were going to capture most of the global market. And so I think that's why that was the only way you could really explain the valuations at the peak is to say, okay, well, this is going to be a $200 billion global industry and Canada is going to capture a lot of it, Right.
1: Yeah, what I find really interesting is you rewind back to uh, you know the, the Eddie Bull market days when you had basically dead mining shells who couldn't raise any assets. They changed their name to cannabis. The stock would go, go up fivefold. And next thing you know, there's a, a $10 million bought deal term sheet in front of them and uh, off to the races and they can uh, pay, pay themselves again. But we all know how that kind of turned out. Most of them have kind of gotten back to the uh, spent all the money and now uh, a shell once again so what do you think is going to happen to all these kind of smaller cannabis producers that lack the perhaps professionalism the assets and the brand to be successful but mostly that lack capital Um, you know say investors are stuck in one of these smaller names what are they to do here and what do you think is going to happen
2: yeah, it's I don't think there's an easy way out of it. unfortunately, I think we're gonna see um, uh, more uh, bankruptcy filings and um, you know we're already seeing uh, some of our our publicly traded LPS go into uh, creditor protection and and I think this is gonna be an ongoing theme for the next couple of years until this is is really cleaned out and then I think some of the mining shelves. Uh, that these guys used, I think we're you know going to have some cannabis shells to use right? <laughs> now. I don't know if there'll be any money in there for for them to have any value, but um, you know we I I remember when we when we were pitching our fund three four years ago. You know, my prediction at the time was we were going to have two hundred and fifty LTS, and then it would need to be whittled down to twenty five because I thought, okay, well. How many large brewers or large tobacco companies are there? There's not that many, really. You know, we, we uh, consolidate the industry and, 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 and pick some winners to aggregate it. And, um, you know, I think we ended up getting more like 300 LPs. And I still think we're probably down to 25 large companies that can grow at scale and grow well and provide cannabis as an ingredient, say, um, if it's not just dried flour, it's a vape pen or an edible or a concentrator, or topical or something like that. And then you probably have hundreds of uh, what we'll call the micro growers or the micro producers, which will play into that craft beam. And those companies probably don't need to be public. Um, and it'll be the larger public LPs that need to buy these uh, smaller micros, just just the way the, the beer and wine industry consolidates, because um, the, the larger groups tend not to be able to produce the same quality. And so it's the smaller, uh, more nimble growers that will have um, stronger genetics and more exotic genetics, and they'll have better grow techniques from their three decades of growing. And they'll be putting the interesting products out there on the market, and the large guys will be snapping them up uh, to lock up those products. I think that's how it's going to
1: roll out. There's a lot of scenarios that could play out in terms of the development of the industry. interested to hear how you think the cannabis industry will look like 10 years from now is it going to be uh similar to tobacco where it's it's highly consolidated with kind of you know two or three really dominant players or is it going to look more like uh, the alcohol industry where you have a ton of different sort of small crappy craft producers that are eating the large producers lunches
2: yeah, I, I think the latter. You know, I think it would, it'll be uh, a barbelled industry, more like alcohol, where you've got a few large ones and a lot of smaller crafty guys. Um, and you're going to have um, different brands and different companies for all the different products that are out there. So people are calling um, uh, this, we're in cannabis 2.0 right now. Uh, 1.0 would have been when we launched in October of 2018 and all we had really was dried flour and some tinctures and gel caps. And now we've got all the edibles, um, we've got uh, the vape pens and the other forms of of concentrate. So when you start breaking the market up, all the cannabis products into eight or 10 different categories, I think you've got multiple brands and companies that are uh, gonna have IP or expertise playing in, in different categories. Just like, you know, if we take beverages or something, you know, you've got you've got beer companies, you've got wine companies, you've got spirit, you've got this new uh, ready to drink segment uh, that's showing a lot of growth. So I think cannabis will be similar. You know, you'll have different companies playing in, in different areas and, and doing different things really good. Um, and i think the um i think that's really that what's going to take the the stigma away from uh from cannabis you know once we have these these products that look more normal on the shelves um, i think that social consumption um is going to be really important you know going i know i'm leaning on alcohol a lot here but i think there's a lot of analogies to use like we, we we know how acceptable it is to to sit in a public setting, whether it be a, uh, a bar lounge or restaurant and, and drink alcohol and in a lot of cases drink too much alcohol um, and right now cannabis is a little bit more secretive and I think the 2.0 products help bring it out of of the dark and bring it out of the alley so to speak and 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 put it uh, make it more normalized and so whether that's in the form of a beverage or in the form of food uh, something where you can you can sit and enjoy a watching the flames game while you're having a craft THC infused beer on top. You know, so I think in ten years that'll be the norm. We'll be used to that. We'll be able to go into a um into a restaurant or a pub, say, and and have a can of beer that's got three or five milligrams of THC and maybe we can even have two or three and be fairly coherent and and, and be able to walk home after, you know. Um I, I think that's the future, and then that's how it uh, that's how it becomes normalized. And I just think beverages is a good way to do it because we're so accustomed. To uh, celebrating and socializing with beverages.
1: Yeah, cannabis infused beverages certainly have received a lot of hype and there's a lot of high expectations behind this market segment. I've read some mixed reviews. I've heard there's some difficulty kind of mixing in the oil into a drinkable format. Uh, I haven't tasted it myself. What are your thoughts on these drinks? Are they there yet in terms of quality? And if not, do you think they they will get there and crack this market such that it can you know expand to these lofty expectations?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't think they're there yet. Um, you know the, the technology is improving. There's a lot of different techno- technologies, mostly nano emulsification right now, which you know helps with the water solubility uh, of the THC, so so that it gets mixed in properly, so you can dose properly. Um, You know, the other part of it is onset and duration. Uh, I think a lot of us have had bad experiences with edibles or you've heard of someone that's had a bad experience with an edible because you eat it or you drink it and you don't feel anything. So you double down on it. And next thing you know, the first one's coming in just (laughs) while the second one starts kicking in and and you've done too much and uh, you're in, you're in bad spot. But, you know, that technology is getting better um, so that uh, you can get a quicker onset. So a lot of these can, can hit you in, in twenty to thirty minutes, which is becoming very close to what a what a, a beer or glass of wine might hit you in. Um, and then the duration of it is a lot shorter. You're not you're not committed to this for four to six hours, but maybe one or two hours. And and so I think that's really important. You know, I, I, I think the a lot of the the drinks or the beverages that hit the market initially, and I'm thinking more in the US because they've had had a head start on us, there was some sort of a sugary concoction that you know resembled more of like an energy drink and it wasn't to me that's not really how you gain consumers you 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 put it in a format that uh they already like and that, that they're already comfortable with so whether that's like a sparkling water or some sort of like soda or a beer you know much better than some hibiscus lime sugar drink <laughs> um so i th- i think the social consumption as well is big for beverages because i think uh right now cannabis is it's not very social because people don't want to stand around in public and consume cannabis and you're not really allowed to. so i think the the um having these beverages in a public setting is also going to be really important too penetrating the market and and now most of these large alcohol companies or beverage companies like a coke or a pepsi even they've they've come out with a view on cannabis and in a lot of cases they've made investments so they believe it's real i think they're they're seeing their market decline particularly the beer segment and they're seeing cannabis and cannabis beverages as a disruption to that and so they want to want to be partnered with with the right groups to to get into those markets so uh, i think we're still early on beverages um but i'm i'm long-term bullish on them
1: well there we go we have our answer here and a ton of great insights uh so thanks tyler uh before we wrap this podcast up just wanted to give you a chance to let listeners know where they can learn more about you uh, whether it be your website uh, social media things of that nature
2: yeah i think the website is is probably best. So that's greenacrecapital.ca. So a lot of information on the team as well as some of the investments we've made. I'll admit we're not, um, we're not as strong on social. So um, I think the website's probably uh, the better place to go.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much, Tyler. Uh, you guys can check them out at uh, greenacrecapital.ca if you'd like to learn more. But for now, I want to thank you for spending time with us on the Absolute Return podcast, and we'll chat with you soon. Cheers.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.